fun morning when I'm actually quite proud to be a Queenslander now. Um, as much as I did love daylight savings growing up, this is the end where you've got to get up early. So I didn't have to get up an hour early. But one thing I am glad about the fact that daylight savings exists is that if your phone is set to another state other than Queensland, it'll put you forward your clock an hour. And it did say for Lay, and I had a wonderful chat with Lay uh, before the service this morning, who was here at nine o'clock, all ready to go. Um, so there are there are benefits there. But I also had just an interesting thought during the service about you know how when you're so familiar with church, you just you know you're familiar with how everything works, and you sometimes don't think so much about what things would look like when you came to church for a first time. And I just thought, imagine you're here in a church for your first time ever in your life, and someone up the front says, we're about to sing 10,000 Reasons. And you're thinking, should I have packed a lunch? (laughs) Only to find out the title's a little bit misleading. It doesn't give you 10,000 Reasons. It's about as misleading as the title of the TV show, Love at First Sight. Not, not an endorsement of the show or the concept. Okay, we're going to continue our way going through the book of First Thessalonians, uh, hence why we had it read beforehand. Uh, let us open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come to it knowing that it is your word. It is God's word given to us that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. Lord, as we look to your word this morning, guide my mouth as I speak that I may not add, change or take away from the things that you have given to us, that I would just be a good steward of the message that you have already given to us. But we pray that your word would be at work within us, changing us more to be like your son, Jesus. The same spirit that inspired the the writers who wrote these words, lives within us. And may it work to change us, to love you more deeply, to to serve you with our whole hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got many regrets in life, but here's one you probably never thought that I'd say is a major regret in my life. Who knew there is an annual vegan congress Actually, as when I decided I was going to go with this idea, I actually started Googling. There's heaps of big international vegan conferences throughout the world. And what I'm really upset about is I've never been asked to be the speaker at the vegan congress that was in Tel Aviv this year in March. Now, give me 12 months' notice. I reckon I could do heaps of research and I could pull out a cracking message for the vegan congress. Now, however appealing my content might be, it's all going to come undone. When they see a bit of steak in my teeth as I present, or I've forgotten to take her off the bib from previously dining at the Ribbon Bib House. Because only someone who's got a genuine heart and passion for veganism is actually going to inspire others on in that pursuit. And the same could be said about Christian ministry and when I say Christian ministry I don't just mean paid Christian ministry I've been repeating and I will continue to repeat that we are all ministers is that we must have a heart generally for the things that we are sharing with others 
You, you need more than just good content. You need a heart that is committed and that deeply loves God in order to encourage others to do the same. And that's a big call for someone who works in full-time paid Christian ministry. That my heart before God, which is constantly on display before God, how that will affect the ministry which I have and uh, the ministry we have with one another. But when we look through the book of 1 Thessalonians, we can see that what was true of Paul in his desire for God His desire to please God is the exact thing he desired and he called for and he urged in the people that he ministered to. This is almost like part two of what we covered last week. In verses one to eight of chapter two, we see that Paul is putting forward a defense because claims have been made against his ministry amongst the Thessalonians. And just by reading verses one to eight, you can kind of deduce some of the claims that are being made against him. At the time, there were many travelling philosophers, travelling through towns, conning people into all sorts of things. And some of the things that were characteristic of those seemed to be claims that were being made by some people who opposed Paul about him. And when you read through those verses, you can probably come up with a, a fair assumption of what's being said about Paul. That they were saying that he's got nothing. His message is void and empty. The only reason why he's getting any traction, they're saying, is that he's deceptive, he's manipulative, he's driven by greed and by self-centred desires. And as Paul began to unpack something by way of a defence, rather than arguing the points, his main concern was, you know what we were like. I willingly put this in your hands. I was here living amongst you as a people. You judge for yourself. Are these things true? And not only that, does he call the people to make their assessment. He says, and I call upon God as judge, who tests and searches the heart. You could summarise something by way of Paul's motives in verse 4 of chapter 2. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. He says, this is what I'm about. I've been entrusted with God's gospel. My motive, my drive is to please God in every way. A God who tests the very thoughts of my mind, the very intents of my heart. And his desire is for a life that is pleasing to God in every way. And when we get to today's reading, we notice his desire is the same for the Thessalonians. It says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's Paul's desire for his ministry. That's his desire for those who he's ministering amongst. That they would see the worthiness of God, they would honour him and they would desire to please him in every way. But as we go through this passage, we see more of Paul outlining what was the nature of his ministry, what was the content of his ministry. That there is integrity in the message that he brought because it is God's gospel. It's not Paul's message, but a message from God that is not to be changed. But also the integrity of his own personal character. But even though his character wasn't what changed the Thessalonians, But we see at the very heart of our message today 
was the word of God being received as the word of God and being at work amongst the people. And the result, not too surprising, was they got opposition. Even their own peers were opposed to them as they began to follow Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at Paul's work amongst the Thessalonians in 9 to 12, God's word at work amongst them in verse 13, and a heading which is probably going to capture your attention, hindering the gospel is inhumane, and that's it's interesting thought as we get on to that point. But firstly, Paul's work amongst the Thessalonians. Now I can't imagine how disheartening it would be to live a life of integrity, have a faithful ministry, only to have people deeply malign you for the work that you've done, which is what has essentially has happened to Paul. But as you read through Paul's letter here, it doesn't seem to have affected him much, does it? He doesn't seem to have even taken it particularly personally. His concern doesn't seem to be so much for himself as a result of the things being said about him, but for the effect upon the Thessalonians who have come to believe and trust in Jesus through Paul. When we read through his defence, he regularly calls upon God as his witness because ultimately he realises, I live for the pleasure of God alone. He doesn't value him, come up with his value of self based upon what other people say about him. It doesn't change his value of who he is because people are saying negative things about him. He says, I call upon God as witness. What God says about me, that's what's important. People can say what they like. I live for the glory of one and one alone. I think at times we'd all benefit from a daily reminder of that, that our value is not measured by what people around us say. Friends, family will say positive things about us, will say negative things about us. In our workplaces, people might say derogatory negative things about us. But our value doesn't come upon what our people surrounding us say. Our value comes upon what does God say about us. And that should be what drives our pursuit. Paul in Galatians 1.10 says, if I was trying to please people, I wouldn't be a follower of Jesus Christ. Two things are completely at odds. Now back in verse 5, they've made some claims against Paul that he was seeking for his own greed. But as he speaks about his work amongst them, he says, you remember, brothers, our labour and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Now as Paul speaks about this labour and toil, he's not talking about his gospel ministry. He's talking about other work he did amongst them because he says this labour and toil we did while we were proclaiming the gospel. So proclaiming the gospel wasn't the work that he's referring to here. He says, we did other work, and Paul being a tent maker was probably doing tent making, to have an income so that he didn't need to ask for any financial support from the Thessalonians. Now we've already mentioned that at the time there were many travelling philosophers conning people out of money, And I think Paul has made an intentional decision. We're not going to ask the people for money in this area lest people make charges against us. And so they've made an intentional decision that they'd go and earn their money another way so they wouldn't have to be in any way a burden on the people 
and also so that claims couldn't be said they were in it just purely for the money. So when you read through a passage like this, do you say, ah, here it is. The Bible says all pastors should be bivocational. Church shouldn't pay anyone to do any ministry. They should do something else and they should volunteer like all of the rest of us. Well, Paul and Jesus actually say otherwise. That a worker is worthy of their wages. Don't muzzle the ox, not that I'm... Or other paid workers that are referred to as an ox, you can if you want to. But the idea is that those who benefit from the ministry should be supported by those who benefit from it. But there's something that also needs to be said with regards to that. When a Christian person in Christian ministry is being paid, it's not because they do it better than somebody else. And nor is it because they're doing something that everybody else in the church isn't already doing voluntarily. The only reason why they get paid is because they are committing a larger amount of time to doing that and as a result they don't have time to pursue an income some other means. Not only was Paul not wanting to be a burden to the Thessalonian church, Paul actually was receiving payments from the Philippians to support him in that work as well. So there's no basis for claims that he was in it for money or for greed. But he's willing to let his whole character be put on display. We see the phrase again and again, you are witnesses. Remember, think what we were like amongst you. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. It says in all of our dealings with you, we were not morally corrupt, we were not unjust in the way in which we dealt with you matter of fact we were blameless now by blameless he's not saying we were perfect we didn't sin we never did anything wrong but he said there was no major fault that would credibly disqualify us from the ministry which we had now they're big claims and he says god be witness You're not going to say that, let God be my witness if you're not confident about the things that you're saying. Matter of fact, it's actually counterproductive for even to ask the Thessalonians to test these things to be true. Because if you're going to say that you are holy, just and blameless, and they can say, no, you weren't, then it's pretty much backfired on you. But Paul was a man who was always other-focused. He was a man who was focused on serving and pleasing God and serving and ministering to others. Last week you saw how he referred to himself as being like a nursing mother in verse 7. And now in verse 11 he speaks about himself being like a father. This is helpful to help to understand the nature of his ministry, but it's also a helpful side point in terms of the nature of what he just says as a side note about what is characteristic of a father. He says he got one central goal by three different means. That we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. His desire was they would live a life pleasing to God and by every means possible, by encouraging them, by persuading them, by compelling them to live because this was so important that God be given the honour to which he is due. By every means possible, Paul is urging them towards who they are made to be. 
And it's natural, isn't it? When God calls you into his kingdom, that you would want to be changed in the way in which you live and conduct yourself. Every single day we adjust our behaviour to fit our context. We understand that in certain settings, certain things are right. In other settings, they're disrespectful. If the Queen was to invite me around to Buckingham Palace for cheese and bickies, as she often sends out casual cheese and bicky invites, if I turned up wearing barefoot, because that's the way I like to roll, footy footy shorts, I don't like to roll that way, just get that image out of your head, and a tank top with Australia as Republic, (laughs) who in this room honestly thinks that would be a respectful way to turn up? Nobody. Everyone without any hesitation thinks, if I was getting that invite, I would not do those things. And if we so naturally think, what is the most respectful, honouring thing to do in the context of going to visit a queen who, like us, is a sinful person, who doesn't even know us personally, doesn't have any direct connection with us, we would immediately change how much more when we are called into the kingdom of God, into a relationship with Jesus Christ, to the holy and almighty God, and who even though we rejected and turned our backs on him, came into the world and died a death in our place to bless us with a relationship with him and an eternal life with him. You think he's worthy of a change? Paul longed, not only in his own life, to see God honoured in every way, he pleaded every way possible that those who would call upon Jesus as their saviour, they too would do the same. It almost seems like a side note when he refers to that just as a father does. As they, this is what everyone knows. This is what fathers do. And as a father, it's a big challenge. Do we encourage? Do we urge? Are we, persuade, are we doing everything within our means that we might present our kids to know Jesus and to follow Jesus? Now, when you hear about all of this effort, you think he's urging, he's persuading, he's encouraging you. You could be mistaken to think that this is all about what Paul does. But when we go to the next verse in verse 13, you see it's all about the work of God's work. To see that contrast between human effort and God's work, probably the best passage to go to is Colossians 1, 28 to 29, where you see them both working together. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So we see this picture of Paul using all of his energy, all of his, putting in all of his effort according to God's work within him. He doesn't just say, I'll just put in all this effort and hope it works out well but striving according to the power of God, the indwelling spirit living within him. Because as Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. No amount of human effort changes a single person. Paul speaks of his ministry as being an extensive effort, but an extensive effort depending upon God 
and depending upon the power and his spirit that he provides. Paul can't take credit for any of the work in, that's happened amongst the Thessalonians. Even when you go back to the Thanksgiving in chapter 1, Paul begins by saying, I thank God because God is the one who's done all of the things that he's about to give thanks for. And it's no different when he goes into Thanksgiving here in chapter 2. And also we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted us not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. Paul says, I give thanks to God because the reason why you heard the words that we have brought to you as the word of God is because God has done that in your life. Because the Bible tells us the natural human response to the word of God is to perceive it as foolishness. To perceive it to be the works of man full of myths and fables. But Paul gives thanks. You took it as the word of God, which it is, and we give thanks to God because he has convinced you of his word. Now it's possible that some of you might be a little bit uncomfortable with the fact that Paul says the words he spoke... As a human being, people received as the word of God. You might think, well, isn't that the, that could be the height of gullibility? Or if you think about cults, often cults, you know, they, they take a, the teaching of a particular human and say, well, they, their word is God. But that's not what Paul is trying to communicate. What he's saying is that the gospel I brought to you as we saw repeated last week, is the gospel of God. The message is from God. The message God has given to Paul, Paul is just passing on that message given to him by God that he's been commissioned to speak and to send. Hence last week we kept reminding it's God's gospel. We don't improve it. We don't change it. We can't improve it. We can't change it. But for people to receive it as God's word, requires the work of God and rightly he is the one who is given thanks. And because it is the word of God, there is a transforming power. He says this word of God which is at work in a continuous sense in you. By God's power they received it as God's word and because they knew as they were reading it and hearing it, this is God's word to us, it changed them. had a bit of a sad encounter during the week with a friend of mine on Facebook, not someone in this area, so nothing to be concerned about, who was asking for recommendations for Christian books. Their comment was that the Bible doesn't help them in any way, so they wondered if someone could recommend any good Christian books they could read instead. Um, which I responded to and also recommended some extra books to read in addition to the Bible, but no other book is God's word. Yes, there are good Christian books, but we never depart from what we know is God's word given to us. This is God's living, breathing word. It is not a textbook. It's not merely the works of man. It's not something that we optionally read once we've finished reading all of our other favourite Christian authors. I know I've got one book at home on my bookshelf. The very first word inside the book says, if you haven't read your Bible today, you haven't got time to read this. And I think that's a wonderful way for any Christian author to start a book. Matter of fact, any other Christian book, its value is only measured by 
how much it is faithful to what God has already said in his word. And if you don't know the Bible, you're not in a position to measure that. It's the Bible inspired by his spirit who lives within us, which is at work within us. And it saddens me the number of people who say, I really want God to work in my life, who avoid the word of God, which was designed to be at work within us, to change us, to equip us, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Through his word, he's revealed to us his character. He's revealed to us what we're like. He's revealed to us how we are to respond to him. And as we read his word, let us remember that we are hearing the very voice of God himself speaking to us. Now there's that, that famous poster that goes around on social media. If you want to hear God speak, read your Bible out loud. It's not a textbook. It's the life-changing words of God to mankind. And one of the evidences of it being at work amongst the Thessalonians is the way in which they endured. Like it goes on to explain why in verse 14, how it's been at work at them. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. I know it's at work at you. Because even when persecution comes from your own peers, you do not move. You're unswayed at all. Because you know the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, the glories of his gospel, the glories of knowing him, that nothing will turn you from it. And you become a... a, a, You intimate... Imitating. I can put words together. This very same thing that happened amongst the Judean Christian churches. They were persecuted by their peers and they stayed faithful. It's interesting when you look around the world, places where persecution increases, the Christians tend to get strengthened. Because they know the worth of knowing Jesus. And it's far more important than anything externally going on around them. Look at the early centuries of the Christian church. It was constantly being persecuted. Even times when they said, burn all Bibles, burn all churches, kill all Christians. And the church continued to flourish and to grow. We've been working through the book of Acts. We've seen the way in which the gospel expanded and grew our people in the middle of massive persecution. But as we come to these final verses of 14 to 16... They cause concern for many. They don't read very palatable, if you, particularly if you just read them on their own. Some have even labelled them as being anti-Semitic, as in anti-Jews. Some find them so offensive, they say they must have been something that was added later on by someone who doesn't like Jews. But all of these issues that people make usually come down to a misunderstanding of what Paul meant when he uses this word, Jews. In this passage, in verse 14, it is very clear that what he's referring to as Jews is not all of the Jewish people. Because he's just compared the Thessalonians to the Jewish Christians who were Jews, who receive persecution from fellow Jews, from some of the Jews. So it's not something you're saying characteristic of a particular ethnic group for all time. 
Matter of fact, he goes on to define the specific restricted group of Jews to which he's referring to in verse 15. As in, those who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and who displeased God and oppose all mankind. He's saying, narrowing down, saying, who is referring to the Jews who did all of these things? Those who killed Jesus, even though that happened under Rome, those who, who desired and, and demanded that Jesus be crucified. And because it's talking about a historical, specific group of Jews, when he speaks about those who killed the prophets, he's not talking historically of the Old Testament, but people like, for example, the execution of Stephen, and those who drove out the apostles and who displeased God and opposed all mankind. Now, if you read that as a statement saying, these Jews who did all these things and they oppose all mankind, you'd think, man, Paul is saying something, if you just read it on own, major about Jews, but he's saying it about a very specific group in a historical setting. Paul's not anti-Jew. After all, he is one. When you read through Romans 9 to 11, you see in Romans 9 that Paul says that he wishes his own self was accursed in order that his fellow people might come to know Jesus. He has a deep love for them. But when he speaks about this restricted group of Jews who displease God, he's speaking about those who have rejected God's provided Messiah. Those who have rejected God's provided gospel which becomes more specifically articulated in verse 16. By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. The reason why they displease God is because this is a God who says he desires that all to repent and come to salvation And those who are hindering the spread of the gospel, it brings people to salvation. Not only displeasing God, but opposes mankind. That's a pretty deep statement to make, isn't it? Paul is saying that those who hinder the spread of the gospel aren't just opposed to Christianity, they are opposed to humanity. God's good news is a good news for all people to hinder or to prevent that good news going forward, the Bible is saying is inhumane. Now, we've got no troubles comprehending if there was a country that had where the, the government had millions and millions of dollars and they had country people starving and they all suffering and dying, we'd say that was inhumane. These people had the resources and they did nothing to care for their people. But we probably don't make the same transition in our mind to think about withholding the only hope for all mankind is actually injustice to the people who live around us. It's inhumane. As I was reading, I was pretty quick to defend in my own mind saying, I would never hinder the gospel. I'm a, I'm a pastor of a church. I would never withhold this good news. But then I thought about it for a while. The reality is, if I'm a Christian, I know the gospel. If I'm a Christian, I'm called to be an ambassador for Christ. I'm called to share this gospel in the world in which I live. 
So if the people who I regularly interact with haven't heard this good news of the gospel, it's not that they haven't got access to it. It's not that they've been brought up in an area where it's not available, but because someone that they've interacted with has withheld it. That's a big challenge, particularly as we start to think we're moving into a new neighbourhood in a few weeks. We've begun to do things in the neighbourhood where we, where we are and we'll still continue with a couple of those that we've had uh, started to build relationship with. But think, as we move to another street, there are people who don't know the good news of gospel who are going to have someone who knows the gospel living in their street. Will I withhold or will I share? But to return to these certain Jews or specific group of Jews to which he speaks of, he speaks about a wrath that has come upon them at last. And that's probably the hardest phrase in the entirety of the passage. Is it talking about something that has happened to them now? Is it about something that's happening ongoing? Is it talking about something future? All of which could be true. There were certainly a lot of historical things even before AD 70 that were happening against the Jewish people. There was a major famine in the land. There was persecution from the Romans. Whether it's just by nature their judgment has come upon them in their rejection of the Messiah that also has um, ongoing eternal aspects as well. Whichever one it is, there's a certain reality that opposing and rejecting God's provider Messiah, his Messiah, will provide in an eternal wrath and judgment. So what do we do with a passage like this? Well, Paul spoke about his motive. Paul's motive was that he would please God. His desire for the people that he ministered amongst was that they would live lives worthy of God, that they would please him in every way. But sometimes that wording can mislead us. Because when we think about someone, how we please them, what's the first thing that comes to our mind? We think, what can I do? Like if I was trying to think, what can I do to please Sarah? I'd think about, what are the things that Sarah likes? I'll do this, this and this. And all of a sudden we think, pleasing God, it's about what we do. Adding a list of things to do. But in our minds we know that there was nothing that we could do in the first place that made us pleasing to God. What makes us think that now that we're in a relationship with God, that we can build up a list of doing this, this and this, and somehow by ticking off the list, that I'll be pleasing to God. Hebrews 11.6 is an important passage. It says, without faith it is impossible to please him. We don't please him by adding a list. Without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. We can only please him as we depend upon him to provide the things that we need to do. And he is the one who will provide and reward those who seek him. He will not hold himself back. But there, right in the middle of Paul's desire to please God and his desire that the Thessalonians would please God, he says, the point that brings about that change is that you received the word of God as the word of God. And it is bringing about a change in your life you might be equipped, complete for every good work. So throughout this week, as you're reading God's word, don't turn up and say, 
I'm a Christian, I better read my Bible, God will be impressed. You are holding the very words of God given to you. Read them out of a desire to know that you have access to hear what God has desired to say to you. That it would be a joy to know him, to hear his voice. And as you come to his word, pray, God, may your word be at work continually in me, that I might please you, that I might lead others to desire to please you also. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that no amount of effort or works will be pleasing in your sight. Lord, we don't want just religious actions. Lord, we want you. We want to know you more deeply. We want to seek you out of the depths of our heart to know the God who loved us so dearly that he would send his son to die on a cross to bear our punishment for us. Lord, help us to, if we've even had even a slight hint of thinking of the Bible as being a chore or a task, or something that we're obligated to do. And help us to see it as a valuable thing. Something to treasure that we can hear the very words of God given to us. And as we read your word, help us to hear it as the very word of God. As though it was God himself speaking directly to us. Lord, as your spirit dwells within us, Work in us that we may be changed. May your word be at work within us to achieve that purpose for which you have called us to yourself, that we might be more conformed to the image of your Son. And Lord, as we desire for our identity, for our hope, to be built upon a conviction that we live for you, for you alone. Help us not to be distracted by the voices around us, the things that are said about us. But to know the joy that we can be called your children, adopted as sons, co-heirs with Christ. That you are at work and that you will complete, continue to that work that you have begun us until the day of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. In his name, amen. Oops.